We have a new sponsor here at In The Money Media. Wanted to tell you about it's Cut, K-U-T-T. This is a peer-to-peer social betting platform that's legal in 37 states plus D.C. where you can bet on sports, politics, and pop culture. Cut handles the payment side of things so you never have to chase anyone down for money. Tons of social features, group chats, betting leaderboards, much, much more. Cut, the social betting platform that lets you put your money where your mouth is. Check it out, kutt.com. And right now we've got a special offer for In The Money Media listeners, a 10% deposit bonus up to 100 in credits when you use our promo code In The Money. Check it out now, cut.com, In The Money. We're also very excited to welcome back Monmouth Park as a sponsor this season. The meet is about to get ready and rocking. Opening day is May 13th, and there's a lot of dates you're going to want to be circling on your calendar, including the Pick Your Prize contest on Saturday, June 3rd. Haskell Preview Day on June 18th. We're going to have a special live stream in conjunction with the contest that day. Lots of stakes action that day. And then, of course, the $1 million TVG.com Haskell Stakes will take place on Saturday, July 22nd. Mark your calendars and follow Monmouth Action all meet long right with us at InTheMoneyPodcast.com. Hello and welcome to the In The Money Players podcast. This is our show for Monday, May 15th. I'm your host, Peter Thomas Fornital, back from Florida, getting ready to head down to Baltimore, but in the Brooklyn bunker once again for this day. And this show, we're doing something a little bit different. If I'm being honest, I think as much as anything else, the plan here is for me to get some free therapy from people who uh, have worked in this game and have perspectives that I really want to hear when it comes to the larger question of where horse racing currently resides in our cultural landscape. I will introduce them first. We have coming to us from uh, the announcer's booth at Parks, somebody who I've heard speak very, very eloquently on this topic of horse racing's social license to operate, as well as somebody I just love talking to about these type of matters, uh, specifically when we're not just properly DGing it up and trying to come up with a, a colonial Monmouth a pick four or something. That's Jessica Paquette. Jessica, how are you? I'm great, PTF. You know, this is kind of a weird time for racing. I'm looking forward to having this conversation. And I think these are conversations we need to be having a little bit more as we move forward into the future of racing. I think that's a great point. There's a lot of people in racing who I don't think take this stuff seriously enough. You hear, you know, these sort of status quo defenses. And and, and I think this will be a chance to maybe challenge some of those. And the other member of the team to do that, someone whose appearances on the show are always wildly popular. He's the Hall of Famer, Jay Privman. Jay, how are things with you today? Pete, they're good. Looking forward to uh, the upcoming Preakness. And hopefully it won't be as... Uh dramatic uh, a time surrounding the middle leg of the triple crown as it was the first leg of the triple crown yeah and that's where we'll start of course and i'll start with a story from my personal life which was coming back this was a really meaningful derby for me because it was not only my mom's first derby it was sort of a bucket list 
item for her to go down there. She grew up, her dad, my grandfather worked in marketing for Seagram's. So they had a number of brands on their portfolio, including um, Four Roses at the time. So he would have to go to the Derby like every year as a work event. And it, you know, took on some special significance and it was great having her there. Also great having my daughter, Perrin, uh, 10 years old, her first Derby and, you know, the, the most meaningful moment of the weekend. I, I, taught them all about the uh, Cody's wish story and obviously getting to watch him win was incredible and seeing the big race. We really had a wonderful time. So then we got back here. Um, gosh, unbelievably, it was just one week ago uh, today. feels like longer at this point and took parent to her guitar class, her guitar teacher, somebody I, I really like, does a great job um, teaching parent. And I, I picked parent up from guitar and she, her, she looks ashen. And I'm like, what's wrong parent? And she says, well, Daddy, Michelle told me that seven of the Kentucky Derby horses died in the race. Mm -hmm. No, 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 no. Not what happened at all. But it led to the serious conversation about, you know, a position I, you know, didn't relish, um, but accepted the responsibility for trying to explain to her what the very real dangers are for these animals. But like the biggest takeaway to me, and and you know, you guys are um I think it's seen this on, on Twitter and both participated in some of the conversation there. Like this is what the world sees. The world isn't seeing necessarily Cody's wish. The world isn't seeing the great story of mage and, and where he, uh, where, where he came from. They're, they're seeing the, the, the deaths and it, it colors the way the world looks at our sport. And, you know, as a father it led me to some, some questions about, you know, am I explaining this correctly? Anyway, Jay, I'll bring you in first. Does that does that story surprise you at all? That 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 um, you know that would be the feedback. No, the feedback wasn't. Oh, that's so wonderful! You went to the Derby, but led right to the the, the horse deaths issue. Uh, I would question the person instructing your daughter as to what content they should be having with the child, as opposed to you. But writ large, uh, yeah, I mean, I've I'm I'm sure you and and Jessica and myself, we've all encountered these things in social. Uh, settings and it, it happened with us. Uh, my wife and I were out with some friends and we were having dinner and I thought, oh, good, we're going to get through the dinner without this coming up. We're going to get through the dinner without this coming up. And just as they're like going to drop us off back at, at the house. Oh, by the way. And I'm like, oh boy, here we go. And it's, you know, it, it's deflating, but I think it really does, to your larger point, speak to how the general public views things. And it, it is incumbent upon racing to have best practices that are more than words and are actually actions. And that's to me where the, the, the gulf is and, and it's gotten better, but it's still too wide uh, where, you know, we can say whatever we want, but our actions are, are what's going to uh, tell the tale here. Well, that's exactly it. There's only so much we can in our echo chamber say how much we love our horses and how much safety matters and how important it all is. But now we have to you know, put our money where our mouth is a little bit and show how, that we really care about and respect these athletes. Is the California model something that racing should be paying more attention to and trying to emulate in other places? I mean, is, it, is this as much of a success as it seems to be from where I sit? I, I don't want to be naive here. And Jay, I know you have your finger on the pulse 
out there, um, even in your uh, in, in your current non day to day role in, in California racing. How successful have California's efforts been? And, and is this something that, that can help in a national way? Yeah, I mean, the, the efforts that have been made out here have been tremendous and the strides have been tremendous, uh, you know, but they emanated from a, a really dark time that should not have happened to begin with. And I think if everybody's got their oars in the water rowing in the same direction, good things can happen. Uh, it got off to a rough start here because I think it happened in California and, I, and I've seen it elsewhere, too. One of the things that I object to is there seems to be a knee jerk reaction when issues like this happen, that it's the horseman's fault that there are issues coming up. And as we are well aware, and as I think the industry is well aware, but but tries to uh, shade sometimes and, and not be completely honest, there's multifactorial reasons why horses can get hurt up to and including track maintenance. And that was the thing that I just found objectionable about the way things got started in California. I think they've improved. And I think if the industry can move forward with the attitude that, you know, everybody's got skin in the game here and to stop pointing fingers and saying, well, it's not our fault, it's their fault, uh, better things will happen. The blame game definitely does come into play. Now, Jessica, I don't know if you're prep you for this and, and um, you know, maybe we'll, we'll kick it back to Jay because I certainly don't know the answer to the questions, the, the question I'm about to ask. But in terms of what California has done to reduce fatalities, what do you think, what are the most important lessons we can learn that might be able to be applied to racing nationwide? Well, I think the most important thing is that we don't lose sight of progress in the pursuit of perfection. I think what happening, what they are doing in California should be applauded and should be emulated wherever it's feasible. And, you know, you're, I don't know if we're ever going to get to 100%, but the constant pursuit of making it safer and doing all of that we can, I think is, is incredibly important. So not losing sight of progress in the name of perfection is, I think, the starting point. But to also to Jay's point, I think, you know, there are a lot of factors that contribute to these problems. And the more we come together and the more we support uh, things that are designed to make the sport safer, like Haiza, I think the better we can be. So much to unpack there, Jess, and we'll get to Haiza for sure. But I just want to start with that idea of not letting the perfect be the enemy of getting better is really, really important. And it also speaks to one of the things that in my long-winded answer to Perrin when she was asking me about this came up. The idea that you want to I think as an industry, you want to have a goal. And for me, I don't think it's healthy to have the goal be zero deaths just because of the nature of horses and what we've all in our lives seen where a horse in a field having the greatest life in the world will find a way to kill itself from time to time. Like they I just, is that right, Jess? They, I mean, I, I always joke because you have to have gallows humor with horses or you'll never survive is that they sometimes I think they spend their day trying to think of the most expensive and inconvenient way to die. <laughs> <laughs> but this is from a place of, you know, of absolutely I would do anything for all of my of all of my horses. And, you know, I, I but they are they are impossible even under the best circumstances sometimes, no matter how much you try, they do. They'll break your heart. And, but that idea, on, the, on one hand, as like a business person, I don't mind setting a goal that I know I'm never going to meet in the sense that, 
Jonathan early on in a lot of our meetings about in the money media would say things like, you know, shoot for the stars, land in the clouds. And there are some business ventures where I think that's healthy. But when it comes to this very question of the social license to operate, is that the tack we should be taking or should we try to incorporate into the messaging what's possible and impossible? Or does that just give us the impossible marketing chore of saying, well, there were fewer deaths, so that's better. It's This is the real, I think we're into the heart for me uh, as like as a marketer and as somebody who loves horses of the real conundrum we face here. Jay, what should our goals be? I, I think it's to do to be showing that we're doing the best things that we can possibly do. There is never going to be zero horse deaths in racing, just as, and this is the point I like to bring up with with people who question things about racing, there's never going to be no deaths in trail riding or show jumping or any other equestrian performance sport. There's inherent risk, and that's the, the phrase I like to come back to, there's inherent risk involved in any of these endeavors. So unless you want to completely eliminate all equine performance sports, there's going to be some risk of some measure, some percentage involved. And I think what we have to do is try and reduce that as best we can and and explain that, like, look, unless you want to eliminate all performance sports, and I think there are some organizations out there that would like to eliminate all performance sports. Racing just happens to be the most high pro- profile of them, so it's an easier target than it is going to Griffith Park and saying, I don't think those ponies should be taken out and ridden by children. Uh, but that's, I think, the overall uh, message that we need to be getting across is that we're, you know, we're continuing to strive and do the best we can. But as I said, you know, early on in here, it, it needs to be actions, not words. Let's talk about those actions, especially vis-a-vis California, Jay. What are you seeing? What have you seen on the ground out there that you feel like could play uh, uh, from, you know, an across the country level, things that aren't being done other places that are being done in California that have worked. So I, I can't speak to what's not being done in other places. So I, I, I wouldn't want to, you know, presume sure. that there's other places that are doing things wrong or differently. I'm, you know, obviously I'm much more familiar with what's gone on out here. Um, in, in some ways, I think some of the things here are almost an overreach and they they don't uh, allow for uh, the experience of top class horsemen and and tr- trusting them but that said uh, there's been greater scrutiny in terms of being approved for workouts uh, scrutiny in terms of veterinarian checks and I think that it's just at the point where you know you've got to be perfect to run or as perfect as can be to run. And that's not a bad thing. Uh, I, I don't think we want uh, the situation that we've seen, you know, in, for instance, Arizona, where there's when horses are injured there, there's excuses given that like, well, we didn't have time for morning vet checks. I mean, if you don't have time for morning vet checks, you shouldn't have you shouldn't be racing. Right. That, that to me should be a non-starter. So so that's those are some of the things I've seen here. There's just been a greater emphasis on veterinarian checks and and that's that comes with you've got to spend the money and 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 hire the personnel and you have to hire the competent personnel uh to be able to do that jess it sounded like you had something to piggyback on that well uh, yeah very much so and i think it's worth understanding that some of the criticism and 
um, that we get is of our own making and it is well-deserved. And some of it is coming from true fringe groups and extremists that if they ever succeeded in getting rid of racing entirely, they would come for show hunters and show jumping and the Western pursuits and all of the other disciplines where animals are working animals. And I think that's, it's, it's important to consider while we shouldn't kind of play to them, we do need to uh, make the general public more supportive of racing. So we have people in our corner. And I think you hit on something really important and that's the whole Overton window concept, right? For the, for those that don't know what that is or, or have some questions about it, just the idea of where the general public is with a certain topic and the extreme groups can move it. But the, and, and I don't want to name check the loonies here, but, you know, a group that believes in the concept of speciesism, who would have you believe that pet ownership is an unethical pursuit, <laughs> you know, that's, that's so fringe as to not even work. Be, they become such an easy straw man to tear down and say, oh, they're just crazy. We don't need to worry about them. The problem isn't them so much as the way that their views have taken it to the center where, you know, a well-meaning uh, music teacher feels like it's appropriate to, you know, have this conversation that that's happening everywhere. I think, you know, where you just have, you have people in the middle and, and they're wondering what's going on with this and is the, is the risk or the downsides worth, worth the upsides. And, 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 you know, I think that's, that's a really important concept. And that to me is where the threat ultimately comes from is, you know, I don't, I mean, obviously there's all, they're always going to be racing in Kentucky. They're always going to be racing in Arkansas. They're always going to be racing in Texas, the future of racing in New York, you know, the big news there uh, that's been safeguarded for, for, for quite a while anyway, but I still think California is a place where, you know, from what we've seen, I mean, thank goodness for the, the positive news coming out of there that we've talked about so far, but I feel like there's a very realistic threat and then, of course, you look at what's happened politically, and in, in, even in Florida with the with the the, the dogmen and the and, and and greyhound racing. Anyway, what I'm, the point I'm trying to make is, I think it's a big mistake for those in racing to just use the straw man arguments and say that th that this doesn't matter, and we're never going to win over these people. And da, 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 da. it's not them that we're worried about. It's the it's that that giant center cut of you know, well-meaning thinking people who just might not understand everything that's good about racing. Am I correct, Jay, and that th those are the people that the power, uh, the powers that be in racing should be properly worried about and that they might, we might be at a point where they, we have some concern with keeping them on side. I, I think that's a fair overview, Pete. I, I, I really do. Uh, I think you're never going to satisfy the, the fringe groups because they'll only be satisfied with the elimination of uh, of a performance horse uh, endeavor. So that's not going to happen. And I think, you know, in, in some places they've tried to bring those groups to the table. And it's, it's just, to me, it's a, it's a Trojan horse when, when you do something like that, because they're just not going to be satisfied. I think your point is, is correct on, on writ large. And I think getting to that point is, is the challenge. Uh, you know, we've seen what's happened with circuses and we've seen what's happened with greyhound racing and, you know, it, it doesn't take a whole lot of thought to, to realize that, you know, racing is is potentially in the crosshairs next. And, you know, we need to be 
as the best we can be in order to stave off those kinds of uh, challenges. Jessica, what do you think about this this concept of you know where we stand in the public consciousness? I think Jay's point about the circus is dead on. I mean, how how far away are we from that uh, potential fate? Well, I don't think the doomsday clock is at eleven fifty nine yet, but I don't. I do think it's also maybe a dangerous ground to play on, where we think racing's always going to be safe in certain states and certain jurisdictions. I think we should be operating at all times with the idea that if this went on a ballot, would we make it through it? Uh, like, I mean, like the Greyhounds did, and like the changing nature of circuses. As we continue to know better as an industry, we have to continue to do better. And, and you know, as times change, we have to evolve or die. This feels like a good point to get back to the HISA uh, potential can of worms that you brought up earlier, Jessica. I feel like if nothing else, to me, uh, you know, trying to be as objective as possible, the events that took place derby week with the, the 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 deaths show that the status quo is just totally unsustainable and that if we let racing be governed as it's been governed it feels to me like we're in the diamond lane towards one of these negative scenarios and you know you want to talk about not letting the perfect be the enemy of the, of the good uh, Heisa can certainly come into this conversation vis-a-vis that uh, particular idea. Where are you as somebody who's, um, you know, uh, lives, breathes and sleeps horses and racing to some degree? Where are you with Heisa at this point? Is this an opportunity for them to maybe win over some of the people in the industry who've been a bit unimpressed to this point? I think the most disappointing thing is the continued pushback from the industry, which just further shows how disjointed we collectively are. This is an opportunity for us all to come together and say, maybe this isn't perfect. Maybe this isn't ideal, but it is what we have. And the best way forward it, you know, is to come together and support it and make it something that is better for all of the stakeholders in the industry. But if the past couple of weeks have shown anything, it's that you know, some of the status quo continues to really push back on this in a way that, you know, you just want, it's a, it is a little disappointing in the, in the light of current headlines and current news. And some of the current headlines have been truly indefensible. I mean, I feel like I'm as much of a rah-rah cheerleader for racing as we get. And there have been a couple of moments in the past couple of years, but in recent, you know, recent times, especially, how do you, how do you defend some of this? Jay, you and I had a memorable conversation about HISA at one of its darkest points, I'd say. Where do you stand on those that still are choosing to defend the status quo? Do you think there's any way we can get a little bit more industry support behind an organization like HISA that at least seems to have the potential to get some of these best practices established on a national basis. I think the overall goal and, and, uh, and what Heisa is wanting to achieve is, is admirable. I think the way we've, we've tried to get there has been a little bit rough, but I, you know, who would argue against uniform medication rules across the board uh, or uniform penalties across the board? You know, we too often have situations and let's, let's take a step back one level from, horse fatalities to just medication violations. You know, we shouldn't be in a position, an industry uh, generated position, uh, a self-inflicted wound of having a a potential medication violation of the hopeful winner 
who went on to win the Breeders' Cup and an Eclipse Award and is the favorite for the Derby, have eight months after the fact, it be revealed not by the industry, but by a, a newspaper reporter that this horse has a medication violation. That's a self-inflicted wound and it's inexcusable. So just having something like that happen, to me, if, if, if Heisen can do nothing else but move that function along in a quicker, fairer, and more equitable way, who could argue that, that that's not something that would be beneficial? Can I interject a little on this um, to the of point course. of by a newspaper reporter? One thing that I find uh, that the industry tends to do when there are negative stories, especially when they come from you know outside of the trades, is there's this reaction of these people are anti-racing and they are you know haters and they are you know cancel culture and things of that nature. And if we didn't give the opportunity for negative sort of press, this negative press would not be there. It's not that people are not, not writing good stories. It's not like there aren't a, a ton of positive, wonderful things to report in the industry. But when we continuously let these negative stories grow until they're these big monsters, you know, this this isn't something that, you know, outside re reporters are doing their job of reporting. I, I agree with you on that on that point. Exactly. I mean, that this was an industry generated error. I mean, it, it shouldn't it shouldn't have come to that, right? Okay, <laughs> no. just, it it no. should never have come to, I think, you know, we're, we're, we're in complete agreement here. I mean, it, it shouldn't come to that. And I think for people to, to, to react that, oh, this is, you know, from the same source that's just trying to tear down racing, I think you need to take a step back and go, all right, what w was reported here and, and whose fault is it? You know, we can quibble over the conflating of overages of legal medication with what, you know, comparing that uh, and, and trying to make it the same in a news story as what, you know, Navarro and Service were doing. I mean, that to me is a fair uh, quibble over some reporting that's done. But you cannot quibble that eight months after a violation happened, it comes out not from the industry, but but from a newspaper reporter. And it, it shouldn't be coming out eight months later at all to begin with. It should, have, it should be coming out immediately. Yeah, it's ridiculous. And I'll, I'll take some subtext and make a text here. Um, so Joe Drape, you know, does have this reputation among some within horse racing. Oh, he hates racing. He's looking to do X, Y, and Z. My criticism of the Forte piece, completely agree with everything you're saying. This is a story that needs to be reported and talked about. I did think some of the language was charged. And not if I was the editor, I would have advised not having doping be in the first sentence, you know, because to me... It what that does is it does conflate Todd Pletcher with Jason Service, and I think it gives people within racing an easy knee jerk way to change the conversation and dismiss this disgusting, completely unacceptable practice of the way these medicate the, the way these violations are dealt with, and and it, it allows instead of focusing on that completely obvious wrong thing it'll ask people in racing to say oh he hates racing he's conflating pletcher with service and then not taking it as seriously we've gone down the rabbit hole here and i, I you know i know you guys both respect his work uh, immensely but you know am i am i wrong with chess about what, about how i feel like that word is just the wrong word to use there i just 
and for, correct me if I'm wrong on this, right? I might, and I might be, but isn't if is my understanding correct in that meloxicam is not authorized for you, you know, use in horses in the U.S. It's only in Europe and Australia. Uh, you are correct in that. So yeah, that's... you know, um, it's I, not a butte overage, in other words, is what you're saying. It's not something that you know. It, it wasn't a withdrawal time thing, so it maybe brings that word into play more. There. So I do, I think that I'm not going to be that bothered by a single word. And I have a lot of respect for Todd and Todd has been, I is someone who I really, you know, since I was a kid coming up and racing in kids, the cup, I, I have a really deep fondness and appreciation for, for Todd. So I'm not trying, you know, trying to cast stones here either, but you know, if we kept our house clean, then these stories wouldn't happen. Anything to add to that, Jay? I mean, obviously, I really want your your perspective as somebody who uh, spent a lot of time agonizing over word choices. Yeah, no, I I think using the word doping is a charged word, and and like I was saying just moments ago, I I think you know conflating overages uh, of something legal, and I'm not talking specifically about what happened, you know, with with Forks, but but you know just overall. Uh, you know, the New York Times uses the word doping for any medication violation. And, you know, I don't think that's fair. But, you know, to Jessica's point and to your points as well, you know, if, if you're going to latch on to that and not the self-inflicted wound of this coming out eight months after it happened, you're, you're missing the bigger picture here. And it's not like this is a one-time thing. I mean, it reminds me very much of all the, the you know, the way that the, the CHRB uh, ended up handling the, the Justify situation. I mean, how can anyone argue that what we have now works at all when you have these high-profile stories that then, I mean, just if you're a racing person that doesn't think about this from the bigger picture, how do you think this makes us look? I mean, we're looked at look like a total joke that doesn't have its house in order and is ripe for, for political opposition i mean uh, i just i just wish within racing we could at least get on the same page about the unacceptability of all this stuff as opposed to just um pointing fingers and and pointing fingers is actually a place that i want to go next because when something like this happens you know in some of my private conversations with friends people who are on the side of racing they want somebody to blame right when when incident like what happened derby week happens and I can't give them, I can't give them somebody to blame. I just don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's a situation that lends itself to that. And it's very, in our human narrative desiring brains is a very, is a very inconvenient thing. Or am I alone in saying that? Do you think when you look back to what happened Derby week, Jay, that there is a particular party we can blame or is it just all about a system that doesn't work? Well, I, I, I think everybody needs to be you know, as we've said early on here, everybody needs to be, you know, pulling their oars in the water in the same direction. And when, for instance, to, to cite specifics in the, of the Churchill Downs situation, there was a, uh, a release that came out or a statement that came out that tried to cite the work of Dr. Mick Peterson as, and, and it sort of used language inappropriately saying that he had said that the track is safe. And there was rightly push back on that afterwards uh, from, you know, a respected veterinarian like Wayne McElwraith saying that, you know, that's just not what 
Dr. Peterson has said and, and would never say about any racing surface. He talks about consistency. And, and that goes to something I said you know, early on here. There seems to be this notion among racetracks that they don't want to take any responsibility of any percentage whatsoever for anything that goes on. And they're always looking to try and pin it on the horsemen. And that goes to the point that you're making, which is we can't just point fingers at one another. We have to be honestly responsible for our own house and do better across the board. And and when you start putting out statements that like, well, we know the track is safe, and that's not what you know, was was said by the person who you've had come in to consult about the track. He didn't say it was unsafe, but he didn't say it was safe. And that's, to me, a way of trying to pin the blame on, on trainers and make them out to be the bad guys. And you're not going to get complete buy-in from everybody when when people who you need to have buying into this are having people accuse them wrongly or unfairly of being the sole problem. That's I think you've really hit on something that does lead in specifically these horsemen groups to have doubt about how this could potentially play out for them in terms of a nationalized system. Is it is more blame just going to get pushed their direction? It's I mean, I have some sympathy for that idea. I think in the bigger picture, uh, I, I still feel like an embrace of HISA and a HISA that's rolled out. In it and and with the the right buy-in from the right different parties, it's clearly a better way forward. Jessica, where do you stand on this issue of the blame game? Um, do you have if somebody asked you that question, whose fault is all this? How would you answer it? You know, I think I think the blame gets spread around kind of a little bit to everyone. If you're not outraged by any of this, you're not paying attention. And the outrage and the criticism, it comes from a place of caring very deeply about this sport and the animals and the history and wanting it to be around for the next hundred years as well. And I think, I mean, to Jay's point, we just kind of need to all be looking forward to the future together on this. Another point as well is when I think you risk really alienating the horsemen and women when you start casting some specific blames um, that maybe aren't, you know, aren't entirely backed up at that point without all of the facts behind you and you want everyone to work together and you want everyone to have a seat at the table where their voice is heard and I think every one of those perspectives is important and it's important for the horsemen and women to not be actively at odds with management. We have definitely seen a fair share of scapegoating some of which I certainly understand where it came from um, you know in the Baffert situation it's it's hard to it, it's hard for me to, to get too um, up in arms about the way that the, the, the Churchill treated him, given the given the body of, of all the evidence. But that goes on a lot, I think, in terms of the, there, there's this desire to scapegoat. I had a reporter call me the other day just looking for perspective. And I mean, the person was begging me to throw Safi Joseph under the bus for what happened. And while I did think that was certainly a bizarre set of circumstances leading to two horses having... Um, heart attacks. I, I'm not willing to say that Safi Joseph is doing anything different than a whole heck of a lot of other people are. And I think obviously but if that work, that's probably worse, right? If they're all, yeah. you know, yeah, what, up with the Joneses cannot be the way we're operating here. Yeah. That's, that's, that's an interesting way of looking at it. I, I, I was definitely thinking of it more in terms of just like, I don't want to, I'm not going to go on the, you know, they were asking me to speculate about, you sure. know, his practices. And I'm just like, 
And this is, yeah, it leads to the bigger issue, Jess, which is I'm not, I'm not willing to throw anybody under the bus because that like, we don't, it's really, really sad that we don't have any, you know, just objectively real way of, of trusting um, integrity issues with, with, with the sport in general. I just, there, it, it doesn't seem to me like there are any best practices for, um, for, for policing this stuff. And um, it's this further and further erosion of the public confidence and also the confidence of those that work in the industry as well, where, you know, we can all joke and speculate amongst ourselves about who's doing what, but there, and, until you have proof, you really can't come out and say anything either. Jay, where does that leave you as somebody who adheres to journalistic ethics, but also has a pretty darn um, clued in idea of what's going on at racetracks and what's the answer? <laughs> Well, I, I think the answer, let's use the, the Safi Joseph uh, situation or, or, or Baffert situation. You know, it's obvious that Churchill Downs is going to protect the Derby at all costs. And anything that is done to potentially soil the Kentucky Derby is going to be met with, you know, strong reactions. And I understand based on how they handled Baffert two years ago, why they made the decision they did regarding Safi Joseph. It, it's pretty hard to let a guy run at your track when that has happened, you know, when he's had two horses drop dead within a couple of days uh, and he's got several more that are going to be potentially running there. So I, I understand why they stepped in and, and handled things that way. One of the issues though, that I've had a bigger problem, or I'm not going to say a bigger problem with, that I have a problem with is that I don't think situations like this are applied equitably and that's to me wrong to me everybody should be treated the same and if you have multiple violations or other issues you should be treated the same no matter what track you're at uh, no matter whether you're based there regularly or not and i just don't see that happening across the board i see favors played based on where a trainer is based as to how they're treated if they're somebody who's based at a at, at a, a track where they regularly run they're going to be able to it, it appears to continue to run there and if it's at a place where they're not able where they don't run regularly they're more in the crosshairs and i've seen plenty of trainers that have had a lot of problems that are allowed to run at churchill downs who are regulars there and people who aren't regulars there can't i'm using that as just one example sure. and that's to me a, the bigger point there is that going back to what you've brought up regarding hisa i want all those kinds of things eliminated i want this i want it if if somebody's going to be suspended for two years for having an issue at the derby for what baffert got suspended for that's the way it needs to be for everybody or if, if what happened with safi joseph happened it needs to be that way for everybody and not sort of whack-a-mole <laughs> you know yeah. and, and if somebody has other violations they shouldn't be then or and you're going to let them run well then okay you need to let those who who have those violations continue to run though i don't think that's what we want to have happen right we would we want it to be more stringent uh so that to me is where heisa can be a benefit where you have equitable across the board consistency on this is the violation. This is the penalty. That's it for everybody. I love the whack-a-mole analogy. <laughs> very, very dead on, afraid, for better or for worse. We only have a few minutes left. I, I want to give you both an opportunity to talk about the future. Um, it doesn't have to be in a positive way, but if you, it, let's, 
put some politics aside for a minute and speculate as to what potential fixes to this could be. And again, I don't, I, 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 and I want you to feel free to get creative and not, because I think of potential solutions sometimes it's like, ah, oh, but that would never work because X, Y, Z. Let's, you know, let's look at this from 10,000 feet and, and talk about this in a way where maybe somebody listening from the industry could, um, you know, see something a little bit different in terms of ways that these problems could be meaningfully addressed. Tif difficult question, but I know you two are up to it. Jay, I want to start with you in terms of some potential positive solutions we could be seeing here to these issues. You know, I don't know that I have any more to add to what we've already laid out here previously. Uh, I, I think some of the things that we've discussed over the last 30 minutes are things that would be uh, answerable to what you just asked uh, in terms of everybody pulling in the same direction, everybody wanting to get as close to perfect as we can while knowing that perfect is not an attainable goal, but you want to try and get as close to that as possible to not point fingers and to have consistency regarding medication violations, veterinary checks, uh, penalties, et cetera. Uh, I think those are all things that can be better and that we're, we're not there yet. And that's where we need to go. But I can't think of anything else, maybe Jess can, but, but I can't in terms of, you know, what else we, we, we would want to do from, as you put it, from 10,000 feet up. I have a follow-up, but I want Jess to weigh in on the basic question first. Well, I think as an industry, we need to stop circling the wagons around habitual rule breakers. And there is a difference between, you know, folks that make a mistake, you know, one or two times and the people who think rules just don't apply to them. So, I mean, in my ideal world, out with them. Let's not welcome them back. Out and make the sport you know, safer, better, more, just more for the animals. And then in a broader sense, if I, you know, could make, have a wish list here, I would love to see less super trainers and the encouragement, I, more horsemen and women make the sport better, more perspective. I think horses in smaller barns, you're getting slightly more individualized care when the trainer himself or herself has to put their hands on this animal every day. It, it, and I'd also like us to breed sounder, more durable animals from really asking for all the things that I want. Uh, less yeah. of an emphasis on precocity and a quick return on investment. And, you know, breeding to race, not breeding to sell. There's a lot of good ideas There's a there. lot. I have a lot. Podcast, that's like three whole podcasts we could do. And maybe <laughs> more. We could just have a weekly podcast of me complaining about things. <laughs> I have a lot of sympathy for everything you're talking about. There's, it's complex and it deserves a fuller conversation at, a, at another time. So I want to get back to my follow-up for, for Jay's initial response, which I guess is more, yes, we've outlined a plan. In practical terms, how do we incentivize people rowing in the same direction? How do we take people? Many people in this industry have spent their successful executives have spent their careers fighting for their piece of the pie. It's kind of how the, it's like the DNA of the horse racing business is to fight for your piece of the of the diminishing pie. How do we break that model and get them to do these things, Jay? Or or, or are we hoping against hope? Well, I, I, I mean, I think if you just maybe forward them clips from all the different newspapers around the country over the last two weeks or handle figures over the last 10 years, well, if, if that doesn't soberly uh, wake somebody up as to what's going on and why trends need to be reversed, then I don't know what would. 
I don't know that anybody will will take us up on this, and I'm I'm really speaking out of turn, throwing your guys' hats into the ring with me for this. But I will just say this: like we're not just people who who complain. I, I think we're all people who are happy to put money where mouth is. And if there is any opportunity to have conversations or or get involved or talk to a to a track executive about some of these things, I, I feel like we're all pretty much open books. I just, I feel like it's important when we're having these conversations and we're, you know, we're definitely saying some, some very sobering stuff about the industry that this isn't just people complaining. We're people who love the game and, and want it to succeed and want to help and just sort of put out that offer that, you know, certainly on, as, as far as I go, if anybody listening, especially in the industry, but has further questions about this or wants to talk about this stuff more, you know, I think that we, we're pretty much open books in that regard and, and happy to not just complain on a, on a podcast and hypothesize on a podcast, but, you know, I, for one, would welcome the opportunity to, to, to get involved and, and, you know, help try to foment some positive change. And I, I feel like um, Jessica and Jay, that's certainly from reading between the lines, I, I, I get the idea that you feel kind of similarly about that. Uh, I, you know, I can speak for myself. I mean, and I'm sure you guys would have similar thoughts on this. I mean, pretty much everything I have in my life is because of of horse racing in terms of people I've met uh, professionally, places I've been able to go, uh, you know, having a roof over my head. I mean, it's all because I've been involved in this sport and I want it to continue, even though I'm not as actively involved, you know, as I was for the, the past 40 years. Uh, you know, I still care deeply for it and I want it to succeed. And I think the conversation that we've had here in terms of what we'd like to see happen and some of the, the, the big picture things that we think need to, to, to happen going forward are from that same point of like, we all love the sport and we want it to be better. And like you said, we're not just sitting here bitching and moaning. We're trying to, to push people along and say, look, wake up. This is what you need to do or you're not going to have it anymore. And none of us want that because look at you know, what, how, richer, how much richer it's made our lives. Jessica, we'll give you the last word on this. So uh, similar to how Jay feels, every good thing in my life has come from horses and racing. If Everything. They've given me a life that is beyond what I could have ever hoped for or dreamed. And I think it's our obligation or my obligation. Personally, I feel to give back and leave the sport better than it was when I got here. When, you know, I, I eventually someday retire. Though I don't know if any of us ever actually retire in racing, but that's an entirely separate thing. <laughs> The other, the other thing is people often ask me as a true horse lover and horse person how I can marry being a part of this sport sometimes with my love for the animal. And there are days you know, where it is absolutely harder than others where I leave whatever racetrack I'm at and go, what am I doing? How, how, how why? But I think I always feel best about my involvement in the sport when I feel like I'm able to make a difference in some way. And, you know, it doesn't have to be a big way. You can't save them all, but boy, you can make a difference for a few of them. And that's where it always goes back to for me. Getting tingles here. You say that great stuff, Jessica, great stuff, Jay. You guys have made, you're very good therapists. You know, the check is in the mail. I appreciate <laughs> all your help today. And we'll, we'll continue these conversations, you know, difficult though they may be, but mainly I just want to say on behalf of me and the audience, thank you so much to both of you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. And we will be back right after this. The third jewel of the Triple Crown is just a few weeks away. And we're very happy to be working with Naira to cover that. And every Saturday of racing, pretty much throughout the year, 
on the Players Podcast, as well as with daily write-ups and analysis over at InTheMoneyPodcast.com. You can now find our picks on the Naira website as well under the Picks, Plays, and Promotions tab. Keep up with what Nick Tamaro and Robbie Fazone have to say, two guys I always want to hear their opinions when it comes to New York racing. Also, if you want to keep up on the America's Day at the Races, excellent coverage featuring Acacia, Maggie, JK, and uh, all the rest of the crack team they have over there on the Fox family of networks. You can go to inthemoneypodcast.com slash TV to get a look at that. We're also happy to have Woodbine back in the fold. We're going to be having weekly coverage of their racing starting in June. The great racing north of the border is going to continue this weekend with two stakes for three-year-olds on Saturday, May 20th. It's the Phillies' turn in the Ruling Angel at seven furlongs on the dirt, and then the boys in the King Corey Stakes on May 21st. Once again, seven on the dirt there. Do not miss out on the action. For some great tips and info, woodbine.com will have you sorted out, and very soon, weekly coverage here on the In the Money Players podcast. Next up on the show, very happy to welcome back a man we have not had on enough lately. You know him from the fantastic work he does at Gulfstream Park on their simulcast feed, as well as some other places. He is Brian Natto. Brian, what's up, my man? PTF, always a pleasure. Good to uh, hear from you, and it was good to see you out of the blue the other day. So uh, we don't catch up like we used to, and uh, as often as we'd like, but uh, always good to see and hear from you, buddy. These work chats will have to suffice for now, that we do need a session soon that involves drinking too much Peace goes sour and screaming Bob Dylan lyrics at the top of our lungs uh, before too long. I have a feeling we probably still do it. We just do it a little more separately than we'd like to. It's <laughs> <laughs> about right. That's about right. Hoping to get a Springsteen show in this summer, by the way. And it, it may it may piggyback right after Royal Ascot. He's got a couple of nights in Hyde Park. So I'm hoping hoping to get there, which will be fun. And that's the segue to the two races that were the the sort of co-features at Gulfstream on Saturday. This this new um, sort of Royal Ascot preview day, you could call it, at Gulfstream Park. I love the concept, something new. Obviously, you know, it starts out and it's it's very much of a glorified uh, maiden special weight situation. But I feel like this idea has some potential. How did it uh, play out from your point of view? I, I agree, and I, I have to be honest, I thought it came together pretty nicely. Um, you know, we weren't really sure uh, what, what we would get because, you know, when you're talking about May 13th, you, you kind of hit it on, on the head, Pete. You're not uh, you're not going to get a lot of winners, let's just be honest. It's May 13th. You know, we've just started integrating two-year-old races uh, probably for five weeks now, and certainly you've got Keeneland and, and, and that in, you know, Kentucky, uh, but you don't really know what you're going to get. But I, I was pretty... Uh, impressed with the product that, that they were able to draw in the, in the fields they were able to get, you know, certainly the Wesley Ward horses, George Weaver, they were all, they, he shipped down a few horses, the Arendelle horses that we had here, Ralph Nix. And uh, I was very happy with it, Pete. And I do think you're, you're right. I, I think it's got some legs to, to moving forward, you know, and I think the other thing I said too was, uh, Ascot and it's, it's largely because of Wesley Ward, let's be honest, but Ascot has really captivated, the American public, and I know you can speak of this, uh, in the last, what, five to seven years, I guess, you know, we get daily TV now, and it's in the middle of the morning, everybody kind of likes that, I, I just feel like it's really taken off uh, in the last half decade or so, and it's, you know, it's kind of cool to be able to be a part of it now here at Gulfstream Park. I, I echo your sentiments exactly, I think the great NBC coverage 
has certainly been a part of it. But I also think it's something that we talk about a lot. You know, if you're into horse ownership just to make money on a dollar per dollar basis, good luck. You know, it's it's not really about that. It's about, yes, it's wonderful. You can score out um, on the ownership side if everything dovetails correctly. But I think for a lot of people, it's really about great experiences. And in terms of racing experiences, there ain't much that compares to uh, those five days in, in June, uh, southwest of London there in the in the Berkshires. It's, it's a special place. And I'm excited to, you know, hopefully once again, have a strong American representation. And also, hey, enlightened self-interest, this gets me a gig, right? If there's no American yeah. runners there, there isn't me trolling everybody wearing a, a, an American flag tie with my, with my top hat and tails. Well, there you go. And you got, uh, you know, it's a heck of a time over there, I'm sure. And, and I, I, you will not be cheated. I know that either, so... <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the Royal Palm Juvenile Stakes first. And uh, speaking of trolling, is is uh, Alex Bregman trolling us Mets fans with the name of this uh, No Name Ever cult that won No Name Mets? Is that what's going on there? You know, Pete, um, I, it's funny. You, you, it's not funny you mentioned the Mets, but you asked me when you texted me earlier, what time do you, do you want to do this? And I was going to tell you, could it be around 4 o'clock so I don't have to watch the Mets today? But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, it's... It, I couldn't figure it out. I, I don't know. Uh, obviously, he's a great baseball player. Um, they don't even play in the same league anymore, right? I don't. I don't know. I couldn't figure it out um, what it was, but uh, I guess so. And then, of course, it's a it's a it's a Mets Yankees exacta, and I, I didn't have a piece of it. Not that I like the Yankees, but uh, I got nothing out of it. But uh, yeah, I could not figure out the connection. No name Mets for a, for a Houston Astros. Maybe it's a double bluff. Maybe it's a it's a reverse troll where he's putting that out there. He he's he's trying to get on um, Uncle Stevie's uh, radar for for when I don't know when his contract is up, but maybe who knows what's going on. Wow, the horse ran, runs. Horse runs a good pitching. He's not going to get on the Mets. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, we'll leave. We we could do a half hour easy on uh, the worst team money could buy part two that we're we've been seeing on the field here. <laughs> Hoping there's still time to turn it around. A couple of forty year old pitchers as your building box. What could go wrong? Um, but let's talk about this horse now. Uh, this one looked it looked better than it came back on the clock. Absolutely love this horse's pedigree. You know, I have a group winning dam. You've got obviously no nay yet never, which is uh, asking bloodlines there for sure. But uh, you know, it's it's pretty as somebody as clock focused as me, it's it's hard not to take kind of a cynical view when you see it come back an eighty one on the time form U.S. scale, equating to about a sixty one on the buyer scale. I haven't seen the actual buyer yet. Um, cool, interesting race, baseball exacta, but probably one that's not going to be a relevant form line going forward at Ascot, even though the bloodline of the winner might suggest otherwise. Yeah, I think that's fair, Pete. Um, we'll get to the other race in a second. Um, you know, Wesley Ward ran two first-time starters, and I, I, you know, holding the line was odds on. I, I, I kind of feel like be, because he was, you know, trained by Wesley Ward, we'll get sure. to the other one who was okay. But you know, nobody did a lot of running in this race. Um, you know, to his credit, he was professional. You can't take anything away from him. And uh, George Weaver certainly had had him ready to roll. But, you know, you'll look at Mattingly, who ran second and, and ran well for Joe Orsino. But he looked like, to me, a horse that, that, that wants every bit of, you know, six, seven, eight, 
two turns kind of a horse and, and he was comfortably second. And then, the, you know, Zaino at, at 77 to one is third. So yeah, you're allowed to think of the two races. This is probably the one where um, you might want to fade a little bit. The, uh, the, the horse going forward. Let's go to the other race, which tells told a very different story in terms of the clock uh, friends at black type thoroughbreds buying into crimson advocate after that first race. And, Part of their interest was the gate speed that this one had shown, and she showed it in in spades this time around. Um, breaks off there running. Wesley Ward's Ocean Mermaid looks like she's going to make it a race for a second there at the top of the lane, and Crimson Advocate has way too much. This one much more favorable on the clock. A 104 time form U.S. and and a horse that, if all goes well, I do think will be will be seen. We'll probably see the other one at Royal Alaska too. I mean, why not, right? With the expenses paid trip. But Crimson Advocate's one that, you know, feels like could maybe make an impact there if they get the right kind of ground. What did you think of this run? Yeah, I agree. I mean if you just if you line up the races, she she beats uh her stable eight by six lengths. So I mean yeah that that that's how good she was. I picked her. I liked her. I certainly didn't think she was gonna bottom out the field on the front end. But boy, she was really, really impressive. I know you I'm sure you watched her debut. She she ran in spots at Keeneland. Uh, kind of looked like maybe she figured the game out a little bit in, in, in deep stretch, as a lot of these lightly raced or unraced two-year-olds do. And the blinkers certainly sharpened her up. And credit to George, he, he had her ready. Because I, I think, Pete, Ocean Mermaid ran. I mean, uh, yes. I, I think she ran. I think she's okay. Um, and she was not, you know, they could have went around six times. She was not getting to Crimson Advocate, who was very, very professional and no one knows more about speed at Royal Ascot than Wesley Ward. And, and that's how he, you know, made his name over there or made yep. such a, a reputation over there. And they're going to know Crimson Advocates in there for George Weaver, right? That's for sure. She's going to hum over there. Yeah, I'm excited to see uh, to see how it plays out. For these races going forward, you mentioned these Ward horses catching extra money just because they were Ward. And I do think, and listening to the interview, it wasn't broadcast here. I don't know if you guys did anything with Cawthon, but he was on with my colleague Alex Hammond over at Sky and was pretty frank about the fact that, you know, plan A was to run at Keeneland. Right. And that made me want to fish for prices in um, in both of these races, just because, you know, from people coming in and just seeing the race, they see Wesley Ward, they see Turf Sprint, they, they say, how much can I bet? But the reality is, if everything had gone, you know, until these races become established where he might hold a horse out to point to these races, um, it, it feels like, you know, you don't want to necessarily take odds on on a horse in, engaging in their plan B. Um, you know, hopefully that's not just redboarding and something that people will be able to use going forward when they, they think about these races that will hopefully become a little bit more of a, of a staple in the Gulfstream racing calendar. Anything to add on either of these? No, but I, I agree with what you're saying, Pete, because, you know, when you doped out both of those horses, um, you know, they, they weren't loaded with pedigree. Um, they, they were nice pedigrees, but, you know, they, there wasn't a Lady Aurelia in there, you know. Okay. Um, and and uh, I, I think you're right in that, uh, you know, maybe at least right now he didn't have, you know, his, the best down here and, and, you know, he's not stabled really here, so... Um, in hindsight, it's always twenty twenty, and it's always easy after the fact. But you know, I, I we heard some good buzz on Ocean Mermaid, and like I said, she definitely didn't run. But the other horse was odds on because of Wesley and Steve Cawthon and John Velasquez. But that didn't mean uh, that that he was going to run like anybody. He certainly didn't. Yeah, Ocean Mermaid. Also, you look at that pedigree. 
Uh, the Kingmans win so much first time. I think he can do anything. Yeah. More of a staying pedigree on the damn side. This might be one who's eventually better at some slightly farther turf sprints, like the ones they have um, at Belmont, maybe, you know, going six. I, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if that would be well within Ocean Mermaid's scope. So one I'm definitely going to put a positive note on and, and maybe look for a little bit down the line. While we have you, Brian, I think we should look ahead to the Preakness, and uh, obviously you got to clap eyes on Mage on a number of occasions this winter. The money's really come for this horse in the last couple of days. Now into, there are there's still a one place where there's 11 to 8. There is some evens out there, but the prevailing wisdom is to push Mage into odds on, and the majority of the money I'm seeing is around about 4 to 6 and, and 5 to 6. As a racing fan, I'm very much rooting for Mage in this spot, but price-wise, I feel short enough heading into the Preakness. What price do you think this horse is going to be? And give me your just general opinions on Mage. Um, yeah, he, he's got he, he kind of has to be six to five, doesn't he? Or evens, and uh, you know, he he beat everybody. This is the thing I said. Uh, about Mage going into the Derby, and you know, I did some things. I did some things with Travis Stone. We were we were out there, and I said, "Listen, I feel so confident that Mage is the best horse in the race." But then I my my second part of that was I also feel very confident. It's a tremendous ask at the time, Pete. Yes, you know, he woke up on I think January twenty eighth as an unraced maiden. Okay? Correct. So, that was Pegasus um, Day. That, that, yes, that the, the maiden win was. Thank you. So. um now though, it's it's scary for the rest of these horses, isn't it? Because Mage was was playing catch up, and Mage is caught up. Yes. <laughs> Mage is. I don't think he's done going forward. So, um, and oh by the way, he still has no idea how to break from the starting gate. What happens when he does that? You know, <laughs> it's, it's a little bit scary. So, um, you know, the two weeks it's. We, we never know. We just did a, um, a 20 year anniversary to funny side here. Uh, Samantha and myself, that, that should be out there Preakness week. And, you know, we, you just don't know how they're going to respond from the Derby and nobody knew, you know, nobody knew funny side was going to, you know, uh, lap the field of the Preakness. You, you don't know how they're going to respond, but um, I think the problem for the rest of the field, Pete is, is twofold. I think not only does mage have to come back to the rest of the field, the rest of the field's got to move forward in, in pretty pretty big way, right? I mean, I know Brad Cox has got the Godolphin horse. He's a nice prospect. Perform was it was impossible that he won that race yeah. um, at Laurel, but uh, boy, it seems to me like you're reaching if, if anybody you come up with. I, I could see that Lexington winner for, for Brad running. A big yeah, race. first missions the, the, the obvious alternative to yeah. me that that looked that looked like good form. I suppose got backed up a little bit with uh, Disarm's nice run in the Derby too, That's right? That's good point too. Yeah. So I mean, hundred to thirty best price on on first mission. I could see I could see leaning in that direction. Uh, I love that Preakness future wager this year and was able yeah. to get first mission at a good price in that. So I'm I'm probably hands in the pocket for this race. But it sounds to me like your first inclination here might be that this is the kind of race where the best way to be a wise guy is to not be a wise guy and maybe just stick with Mage. Yeah, I, I, it's not the spot I'm going to try to beat him. Um, but, you know, there might be some value in just the one punch there because maybe people, if they're if they're okay with Mage, Maybe they, they're, you know, they're, they're playing five or six different exactas and maybe you get a 
$22 exacta with, with that, that one there. And, uh, you know, cause I do think Brad's horse is pretty talented and, and, uh, He's also, you know, assuming Mage has got a, a, an issue again at the gate, or maybe Mage just wants to, maybe that's where Mage wants to be. I don't know. He did wire his debut, but maybe that's where he wants to be. Well, uh, First Mission has a huge, huge tactical edge in that spot. National Treasure catching a lot of money in the betting. This is a horse that we know Baffert for a long time had talked about as one who was going to be better at three, better as distances get longer. I mean, five to one into the teeth of those top two doesn't do much for me. At this stage, blazing sevens in the market at eight to one. We've seen this movie before from Chad Brown skipping Derby, going to Preakness. But, you know, this horse has more to find, I think, in terms of form and figures. And then next in the market is Perform, who, you know, I'm kind of with you. I felt like very fortunate to get the job done the last day. Not sure this horse wants to, to, um, you know, a challenge like this and to be only eight to one in the market probably uh, tells you something about the rest of this field. Any, any thoughts on, on either of that trio that's next in the betting here? Well, you kind of hinted at, at something with blazing sevens. He, he's going to be an underlay because Chad Brown has, has pulled this, you know, wool over everybody's eyes <laughs> twice now. But what you hinted at was that those two horses, cloud computing and, and um, early voting. Thank you. Early voting. They were, they were good horses. <laughs> I don't know what Blazing Sevens is. What's he done? You know, and what's he done in two turns, especially? I he, he is not either of those two horses. And so you're going to get an underlaid price because this is a, you know, a tremendous trainer doing something that he's had, you know, success in on the national stage. I've got to see a lot more from Blazing Sevens before I would back him at that kind of number. Um, perform is, is kind of the same. If you if you need to get out or maybe you need to hedge, okay, at 10 to 1 or 8 to 1, you know, he has some appeal. Um, the win was, if you haven't seen the win, just go back and, and watch it in the, uh, the, the Tessio, I believe it was. It was um, the Tessio. Yeah. It, was, it was impossible that he won. It, it was impossible that he was – it was, would have been good to run fourth and somehow he won and he actually kind of sort of won in, uh, almost comfortably late, but you know, these are the big boys on, on Saturday and he's got to run a lot faster and he can't pull that kind of stuff either. So um, I, 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 I think the gap from, from uh, the top two and national treasure, I don't, I don't know. He's, he seems like a reach, doesn't he? Yeah. I, I want to see it. I, th- mm-hmm. There's been, it's the kind of horse that I feel like, I could end up with egg on my face just with one of those, ah, well, you know, we were told this horse was supposed to be better, blah, blah, blah. The Santa Anita race um, didn't come, you know, it wasn't a bad run in the Santa Anita Derby, but I just need to see more. I mean, if the horse was 10 to one, sure. But I I think the, the, the early market's probably accurate. They're going to be looking at half of that. And you talk about blazing sevens, the claim to the fame, the claim to fame is of, of taking advantage of a pace meltdown in the slop so far, you know? And the form of the bluegrass is looking yucky. <laughs> Eight runners to come back. And I don't think any of you even hit the board. So I, I think, yeah, I think I'm comfortable being against there. Three long shots will round out the field. We got the news that the Maryland bread uh, coffee with Chris will be taking part. Red route one's name in there, as well as a runner called chase the chaos, who I'll admit I would have to look up to be able to tell you much about, but you know, at least we are going to have uh, what's that? A field of eight or nine taking place. I think that's uh, hopefully we'll have. It, I think it's going to be an exciting race, and I think first mission versus mage is a pretty good storyline 
at the top of it. Uh, and certainly as a racing fan and one who already has uh, his Belmont tickets too, by the way, it'd be a great story. I sort of have the emotional hedge of my actual bet on first mission of how happy I'll be to get to see Mage going for the triple crown potentially, should he get the job done. I, I don't necessarily need to back him with, with dollars because I feel, I feel like I've bet already with the, the tickets I bought. Yeah. What'd you get on that? Because that was a very, very cool bet. The handle was very, very high and well-received and, uh, I thought it was pretty neat that they did that. What was I love doing? that idea. They, it handled about 300K. Yeah. And I think first mission closed between six and seven to one. So the, all go. the value there. And the folks who believed in Mage for that bet, like our buddy Chris Andrews from Vsin, who put, so we, the Preakness Future bet actually sponsored our Monster Pod this year. So everybody got a hundred to, to spend in the market. So Chris is alive with his, his hundred on Mage, which I think was something in the order of, 25 to one. And we got a lot of people with that six to one, seven to one on, on first mission. So it's uh, just adds a little bit of intrigue and I'm pumped to be going down there. I assume sometimes they call folks in from the far corners for the Preakness, but I assume you will be in South Florida next weekend. I'll be anchoring. I will only be in South Florida. Samantha's up there. Claudia's up there. And uh, certainly the whole office and staff is up there, but I'll be anchoring uh, the program down here. We got 12 races. Uh, on Saturday, so we're going to basically belly right up to post time. I don't know have an exact post time, but I'm sure it's you know six fifty eight or so forty eight or something like that. So I think our last race is like six thirty four. So yeah, we'll take we'll take everybody right up to that, and uh, we'll have a lot of fun down here. But uh, I got a weird feeling you'll have a little more fun involved. <laughs> I'm hoping it's going to be great. Hopefully the weather cooperates. It looks yeah. good from here. Maybe some showers, but it's not going to be 97 degrees like it was last year. So we're mm-hmm. going to call that. We're going to call that one a win. And there's a lot of time between races. So definitely be looking at the Gulfstream feed, Brian. You and your colleagues do a fabulous job making that uh, making that fun and also providing some invaluable information as you did last week at giving out, uh, giving out that nice priced winner in the, that Royal Palm juvenile Phillies, Brian, we will have you back on soon and just really appreciate your time today. PTF man. It's always so good to uh, hear from you and anything you need, you know, to let me know. So I appreciate it, buddy. Cheers, my friend. That's going to do it for this edition of the show. I want to thank Brian Natto, Jay Privman and Jessica Paquette once again for their contributions today. We'll thank our founding partners, 10 Strike Racing. Looking forward to seeing uh, some of the 10 Strike crew this weekend down in Baltimore. That's going to be a lot of fun. And of course, the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation. To find out more about the work they do, visit our page, trfinc.org players. Lots more fun projects to come with them in 2023 and beyond. Most of all, though, I want to thank all of you, the listeners, for making these shows so much fun to do. Reach out to me on Twitter, at Looms Boldly, or through the contact page over at InTheMoneyPodcast.com. That goes straight to my email with any racing questions, business inquiries, whatever it is you might have for me. I am very much around. This show's been a production of In The Money Media. Our business manager is Drew Coatney. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin. I'm Peter Thomas Fornatal. May you win all your photos!